Hey y'all, this is Monica. This is the second highlight reel of my three-part conversation with Ian Davis on the multipolar world order. Enjoy. Multilateralism, really what it means is just many more nations having a say in decision-making. So you might think that, the, for example, so you could say that the G20 is more multilateral than the G7 because, you know, obviously there are 20 nations making, contributing to the decision-making. Um, multipolar is a slightly different concept because that really is about breaking the, con- the world up into blocks. So, so if you look at the G20, for example, there are five groups in the G20. So the groups, I think, two, two, or groups two, uh, three, four, and five are broadly split in geographical terms. But groups one and two are split in more kind of what I guess you might call aligned political and economic interests. Yeah, they're like the bulge bracket regional hegemons. But, kind yeah. Of. Yeah, so you've got the bulge bracket one and two, and then yeah. you've got then you've got geographical split in the other three groups. So I mean, oh, you that, you could almost think of that as like a corporate hierarchy where you have kind of a yeah. division head, and then the divisions that report to them. Of course, they don't think of it that way, but yeah. So I mean, so what you could so the way of thinking about that is the G twenty overall, if all of those countries are equally participating in decision-making, is more multilateral than the G7, but the G20 is more multipolar than the G7, because the G7 is just one group, whereas in the G20, you've got four or five distinct groups. And and one thing that I did get out of this, I think it was an Olaf Schultz comment that he made, maybe at the World Economic Forum thing, something like that. I, I don't have the actual quote, but I have what my impression was of it, that it was uh, also folded in, whereas the multilateral thing or the previous um, paradigm was more focused on nation states as being the the dominant entity of control, whereas and this is very World Economic Forum, it moves towards a sort of stakeholder concept, which in, in your, I think one of the things that you said was basically the nation state one, the oligarchs or the G7 one, the oligarchs had influence, whereas with the G20, they, they more have control. And I feel like they fold into that with the World Economic Forum that all of these stakeholders are really, say, philanthropies, labor unions, corporations, stuff like that, that look like they're representing different factions of society, but really are kind of political entities that serve the agenda that exploit those factions, kind of like, I know you're a Brzezinski fan, that's what I got out, or not fan, but... Um, yeah, uh, no, yeah, I'm you, certainly not. <laughs> yes, that you, are, that you find his work illuminating in understanding yeah. how things have progressed. In his crisis of democracy, which was, I think, one of the first things the Trilateral Commission did, he got a bunch of people to write these essays about how what, what went wrong in the 60s. And then he says as a takeaway, well, in order to control democracy, we need to make sure every single person, and this is me paraphrasing, every single person is a part of a an institution that is non-democratic, but that their livelihood or their interests are tied to so that if it's a corporation or a labor union or a university or whatever it is, they'll go along with that and they won't really have that kind of a say. Now, some of the people who contributed to that, that like um, collection of essays objected to that as being the takeaway. But of course, the reason he put it together was so that he could. And I feel like this is, uh, along with many other things that are a culmination of Brzezinski's, um, I would say, plan, others would say predictions, is, uh, you know, part of that, where it takes the power away from the nation states, away from anything democratic. And once you start that, you really have then then they actually, I would say it's not even multipolar anymore. It really will feed into the top of a, of a level of self-interest at the very top among the oligarchs that we will we probably won't even really be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's a very interesting person to sort of as a kind of uh, a lens through which to look at what's happening at the moment. Um, you know, obviously, not only for his effect at the, you know, geopolitically and and uh, towards the end of the 20th century but also the fact that some of his observations have been a very telling for example you know he's 
Bzezinski, it's Bzezinski that talked about the game, meaning, you know, the geopolitical game, who made Ukraine a, a, a very important part of certainly Russia's global geostrategic ambitions and, you know, made, made it uh, a, a very important part of the US's ambitions for the Eurasian sort of landmass. It's not a continent, it's more than that. It's a, you know, it's a multiple continent in a way. But, um, you know, so I think he's interested in that, that perspective, but also, you know, obviously his involvement with the Trilateral Commission and their involvement with, with funding and certainly encouraging the development, development in China, um, you know, and I think it's interesting that something I think that stands out for me from, uh, I think it's in the Grand Chessboard, where Bezosinski, oh no, I think it's in the Technotronic Era, where, where Bezosinski speaks about the fact that uh, nation states that the the, the pri- basically private corporations have already eclipsed nation states in terms of their ability to master resources and and to control resources and and in their strategic planning. So, I think the difference between the kind of what we might call the multi-stakeholder partnership model is that. In the same way that the idea of multilateralism is supposed to supposed to give nation states e- an equal say, I mean, obviously not all. That, you know, you wouldn't expect, for example, the Solomon Islands to have an equal say to the US on on certain subjects, because obviously the the US is representing a far greater body of people. So you know, I mean, that's only reasonable and fair, perhaps. But nonetheless, the idea of multilateralism is that nation states have, um, re- relatively speaking, equal say. The idea of the mul- of multi-stakeholder capitalism, which is something that Brzezinski kind of highlighted again in the Technotronic era, is that corporations have an equal sta- equal say with political bodies and governments. So in a multi-stakeholder setting, you know, what um, BlackRock say is as important as what the US government says. They're on an equal footing. That's that's the point of partnership. Now, I would argue that, you know, given something, a company like BlackRock that's got, I don't know, what is it, 8.7 8. or $9 trillion? Yeah. I mean, I've read not, 10, yeah. Yeah, 10, yeah. I mean, who knows, really? Right, right, honestly, right. At that honestly, point... <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I mean, but they but they can obviously have the ability to control resources, which which is significant on a scale that's significantly greater than the GDP of many nation states. So, if we're just talking about brute economic force, and I don't think that's necessarily the only. It, that's not the only factor. There are other factors that play into the exercising of geopolitical power. But nonetheless, having being able to marshal and having oversight of resources on that scale gives you, I would suggest, significant political clout as well. And would you say that this idea of the multipolar world order, the G20, could be like... Um, a front or a face job like it looks like there are 20 so you have like i mean i'm sure guatemala would not be in the g20 but say sweden or somebody's in the g20 and it looks like you have this more equal playing field that you have all these countries and it it either and it could potentially mask the outsized influence of the oligarch i mean i don't know how to pay like global Mm -hmm. corporations or these non-governmental entities that are that really dwarf any impact that Swedish, you know, president who's like getting all the fanfare and everything. I mean, she's obviously just saying something people tell her to say. You know, uh, I yeah. just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the 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 thing is that when the UN was first established, it was established as a, a as a public private partnership. It, it was it was set up by the by the Rockefellers, really. And their partners, it was, and you know, people like the Carnegie Foundation and so forth. But I mean, the, really, it was led by the Rock, Rockefellers, and was created as a public-private partnership. Now, that was the idea from the very beginning. Now, 
because because of the influence of of corporations and so forth. Now, now that is totally contrary to our perception of it. You know, I, I would say that our perception of the United Nations throughout the the certainly the sort of latter half of the twentieth century, and because there was a lot of debate about the United Nations when the United Nations was actually first set up, a lot of people were very opposed to it because they saw and- it as. And they wanted, and then the other people like Alger Hess and stuff, they wanted it to be, to have the power to tax and the power to exploit. It kind of reminds me of the Fed. Like you think of it as a public institution, but it's, it's not. Yeah. I mean, I think you could look at those arguments on a continuum, can't you? So at one end, there were the people that were saying that this should be basically a world government. Right. People like Alger Hess. For sure. They were outwardly saying a guy named Cord Meyer wanted to run it. And he later ran Operation Mockingbird. I know JFK was kind of like, maybe. (laughs) So and at the other end of that spectrum, you had people that were just vehemently opposed to it, you know, just saying it's the end of national sovereignty and, 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 and that. So a, you know, as as often happens, you know, a compromise was met. But in but but in the middle of that was a very strong influence from private capital. Private capital was what basically created the what went on to become the the administrative part of the of the UN. So I mean, this private capital was always involved with it. But we have always we've just perceived it purely as an intergovernmental organization. That's the way that we that the ninety-nine point nine percent of us think about it. But it was never that. It was all it was always more than that. Was it was it so when you say it was private capital was always a part of it, and you specifically cited the Rockefellers, is that right? Is there yeah. anybody else you could specifically say was in on it from the beginning? I always thought of it like the Rhodes, Rockefeller, Rothschild. You know, contingent as being the like it's every it's that whole UK US axis and anything more than that. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at that, I mean, so you've got who is funding this operation? So who's funding? This, oh, right, this, uh, it was you know, this, Rockefeller contributed that land in New York. I mean, I grew up. Yeah. My father taught me that. For was like, that's a Rockefeller project. That's yeah, right. So, it was really the Rockefellers. That's right. All right. Okay. Yeah, but but also who's who? You know who's behind the? I mean, the Rockefellers obviously yeah. are in, independently wealthy in their own right. But I mean that network that Carol Quigley spoke about that that yes, Anglo-American yes. network. Yes. Is you know there are there are multiple corporations involved in right, Chase was his cha- yeah Chase and then yeah. but then you got J P Morgan and people like and that. then they rope in the government the U S government to pay for it so like the U N the U S government took a lot like the countries wouldn't pay into it and that's another thing my father used to always balk about like we pay for the U N and like other countries are supposed to pay us back but that of course is just the Rockefellers getting somebody else to you know it's like Trump wants the Mexicans to build the walls like they're just getting somebody else to build the wall. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, normally, I mean, these these companies might be willing to invest, you know, I mean, corporations and, and uh, oligarchs like the Rockefellers might be willing to invest some capital into it. But ultimately, they want that money back and they, yes. want, and they, want, the ta- oh, yes. they want the taxpayer to pay for it. I mean, that's normally normally the way it works. And the way they shape the world to benefit their other assets sometimes disconnects, you know, what they may lose in one place. I always think Rupert Mur- yeah. Murdoch. Or people who own like the newspapers, like they probably have, you know, more money in oil and gas, and they just need the newspaper to get people on board with policies that promote their other interests. But yeah, I yes, mean, me- I mean, media like has that. been a loss loss maker for yes, for, of course. I mean, it's obviously least, a propaganda yeah. machine. It's obviously yeah. a public relations <laughs> arm yeah. of the certain enterprises. So uh, one, I, I see a quote here from Smoggy. Uh, I don't know if that's pronouncing correctly, but uh, he says yeah. basically that they're not um, that the world is more and more economically integrated, but not financially or politically, and that there needs to be institutions emerging like that that could be outwardly controlled to some extent by a G twenty consortium, but that stuff that's more politically sensitive has to have the appearance of simply just being influenced or guided more in the style of the G7. So I found in that, and maybe I'm misreading it, but I found in that the idea that the G20 model is a step towards like actual functioning world government and that I, I and the one thing that you have absolutely pointed out, we talked about this last time, is this move towards even just a tiny little 
universal financial tax, which you rightly pointed out in this article, like is not really going to be borne by the financial entities that we're supposed to have no sympathy about. But it's really the foundation of what Alger Hiss wanted from the UN from the yeah. beginning is like the ability to enforce, the ability to tax. And then one thing that I thought of you, I was looking into something yesterday about the um, French labor strike and exacerbating energy price problems in the UK, uh, in the EU. I was reading about this yesterday and I was thinking about how labor unions around the world right now are really doing unsympathetic things, which is unusual if you want to keep people on your side. And I thought we're, we're moving, you know, the Great Reset really does have a lot to do with labor. They call it like the future of work, that kind of thing. And here, when we went to the Zoom land, we eliminated, we pushed into the virtual world, forced into the virtual world, a lot of stuff that people wanted to go to the office for. And now companies are having problems getting people to go into the office. And I say, that's very short-sighted because once you make your job not connected to your presence, your physical presence, it'll go the way of call centers. So here, almost all of our call centers are handled out of India. And it's because you can just make it remote. As soon as they make that totally remote, it's really going to impoverish a lot of people here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be the foundation or the spark for a call for international labor laws, for some kind of international minimum wage tied to a basket of goods in any one country tied to mm -hmm. a synthetic currency, something like that. So I see emerging environmental standards are classic, you know, obvious, most obvious example of something that needs to have an international law you know, that, that's being used right out of the report from Iron Mountain, which is like one of my favorite go-tos because it predicts basically everything. And, uh, and so I see in that, like what I think that maybe dovetails with this transition to the G20 is that they're, they are serious about making real mm -hmm. laws that can be enforced. Oh, yeah, they're very, very serious about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think also there's an element of it. It's like anything that they're not going to, and one of the things that's most concerning is the speed of change that's happened as a result, I would argue, of the sanctions in, in, against Ukraine. Yes. Uh, against Russia. That has accelerated this transition incredibly. But um, generally speaking, they don't try and enforce everything all at once. You know, it's this, it's this, they sort of drip feed, drip feed ideas out. So at the moment, for example, if we're talking about central bank digital currency, at the moment, Nearly every nation around the world has got is is at a various level of development um, in terms of central bank digital currency, and notably, it was the the World Bank I think put a report out, which interestingly, you know, for some all of a sudden, it is the Western G seven NATO aligned unipolar world order that is that is lagging behind in terms of developing central bank digital currency, which normally they would be at the forefront of that kind of thing, but. All of a sudden, they're not. All of a sudden, they're lagging behind, and and the East are, you know, Russia and China are surging ahead with that. And I and I think going back to what you were saying about in terms of you know establishing things like global tax systems, and also about the future of work and the future employment. And you're quite right. There's been a lot of talk about that. I think the idea is, and we can look at people like some some thinkers on the left certainly have been talking about this a lot in terms of kind of what they what you might call utopian, you know, socialist utopia or utopian socialism, is the idea of universal basic income. And I think that is where we're heading. And very interestingly, the, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, I think it was last year, they put out a, a kind of promotional thing called, what was it called? Future Scope, I think it was called. Um, and in that, I mean, it was very much, they were talking about a new world religion, which would be the, um, you know, based around the Earth Charter. And I think it was actually called Earthism. Oh, my um, God. They were, talk, they were talking about everybody being on universal basic income. Um, I mean, and these are, I think we, we you know, I mean, we shouldn't get carried away with this. These are ideas. They're, they're floating ideas about where and trajectories about where they want to go. But that's letting us know where they want to go. And I think we would be foolish not to not. And then if you then look at the, the actions and, and what's happened, certainly in terms of the sanctions, um, for example, 
then it's all heading in that direction. So we should, I, I think we can put these two things together. I think we can put their wishful thinking together with the actual events that have happened and, you know, take them more seriously. I do want to ask you about the UBI. You know, in thinking about this, do you think the UBI is about making people, disempowering people and really limiting mm. their resources, reducing population ultimately, or just making them more controllable? What's your feeling about what it's really about for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about control. It's it's all about, I mean, you, if you think about it, if you're totally reliant upon the state for your livelihood, right? So, I mean, it's the same really as being on welfare, but being on nothing but welfare. Right. You're, you're on nothing but welfare. So you're totally reliant upon the state for your income. Even if you earn money independently, that money itself, if we have central bank digital currency, I mean, the nightmare scenario is the combination of central bank digital currency and UBI. You put those, right, two, right, things, definitely. You put those two things together and we've got, you know, we're in deep, deep trouble. Then yeah, because, because the we, plus that's a, you know, then it gets enforced the way YouTube does, you know, like yeah, um, you get yeah. censored for things that you say, like, like I get taken off of YouTube all the time. I get strikes on YouTube all the time. That's going to happen to my debit card. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's all, we've already seen this kind of thing happening in, for example, Canada. So if you, you know, when, when they, they froze people's bank accounts because they right. were expressing. The and that was a shot across the bow. That was a warning. Yeah, it's a it's a warning, but it's also you know people see that thing and and, and all the, as far as that goes for most people is they go oh isn't that bad you know isn't that terrible, but but that is the model that is what they're building that's what they're constructing. I was reading about the um, kind of post enclosure era of the in the UK and that there were laws about being able to move from one place to another, being able to work from one place to another. And then if, you know, a factory opened up and they wanted to use you, they would and they wouldn't mm -hmm. obey the rules. But if you were the one who were instituting that, they could shut you out. I was shocked. I really have to read more yeah. about that enclosure situation, how it changed the world, really changed the direction. Um, but don't underestimate the power of being limited in that way. And I, I always, I envisioned it in New York a decade ago when they were starting to do, they wanted to put a tax on sugary drinks um, and, and then it was just was pushing everybody into aspartame, which I was like, that's not better. But yeah. I thought at some point, if they have digital currency, they're going to be able to tax your first sugary drink at 10%, but your third sugary drink at 100% or 300%. So not only just geographically, but decisions, choices. As soon as you... I was worried about national health here because I thought they... And, and right after I said this, Bloomberg came out and he said, well, now that we're paying for your health care, we get to decide what goes into your body. And that's that whole totalitarianism, but they know they need the enforcement mechanism at a really granular level. And that's, I think, yes, that's a, that that clarifies that answers the question for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that they, I mean, I think people need to grasp just the level of control that these things would give them. And I'm wondering, there are a couple of things that I, you know, I always wonder if they're, if you think they're really done with such foresight that they're intentional or if they're a response to changing circumstances. And two of the things that I was thinking of when I was reading your article were the unsustainable debt and the rise of China. So I always go back and forth thing like, did they go, did Nixon open up China? Did we give China most favored nation trading status earlier than anybody else? Um, because they wanted China in a particular position, they wanted to have that tension between East and West. They wanted to bring up the East and push down the West so that it could integrate more easily. Or did they see that China was inevitably going to be a powerhouse and they wanted to get a foot in the door? And then similarly, they have absolutely uh, pushed our debt to unsustainable levels at the same time that they shut down our economy. They clearly, that was the result of government action. Did they do that particular thing on purpose? Did they deliberately make the debt impossible to cope with so that they could trigger a financial crisis and bring in a new currency? Or is this stuff just one paradigm comes to an end and they anticipate that and try to get ahead of it? What's your opinion on those two? Well, I think it, with regards to China, uh, there's, I mean, also, this is the way that we need to think about the people that are involved in this kind of thing. So a lot of people would have been working on safe, for example, Elon Musk, let's say. Elon Musk has got a, a large investment in China, right? The Tesla factory in China. 
So Elon Musk, and I'm not saying he does, I'm just guessing here, but I mean, Elon Musk might just simply see it as an opportunity to get a market opportunity in China. Obviously, it's an absolutely enormous market. He can obviously get, you know, labor at a better at a competitive price in China than he could in the US. But also it gives him access to potentially to China's market, which is huge. So just from a, a purely economic, for no other reason, just from a purely economic standpoint, that makes sense. But if you also want to be able to do something like for a, a ex, assist Chinese technological development, then you can also do it through things like foreign direct investment. So there are some people I would suggest, and I would certainly suggest the Trilateral right. Commission, were very interested in establishing technocracy, and I'm with Patrick from Patrick yes. on this, were very interested in establishing technocracy in China because it's its political system, which is, I mean, you know, not being not being disparaging to it, but let but let to China per se, but it hasn't got, uh, a, you know, what we might consider to be a democratic tradition. It has right. come from a kind of feudalist system. Commanding, and we did that with Russia during the Cold War. Like, they did psychological experiments that we were not really permitted to do, but we exploited their results. And, you know, I think that yeah. there was some some intention behind that. And, like, in Israel, they do some more surveillance stuff or tech stuff that we wouldn't wouldn't go well but yes yeah, so to have a, a place like that where you could do stuff like that as a stepping stone and then use that as an excuse to pivot towards it because look yeah. now it's too late yeah and, and also i mean the population is more uh conducive to accepting yeah. that kind of top-down control right. they're, they're that's they're accustomed to it this yeah. isn't to say that there's no political debate in china because there's a lot of political debate no but they don't have that history of individualism yeah. that we yeah. have yeah so they you know they got this tiangsia kind of idea of uh, yeah. you know so it's totally reasonable i actually think it's uh, uh, obnoxious of us to go to every country around the world and act like their culture has no you know well value. certainly china i mean china's <laughs> cultures you know i mean it's you know arguably i mean it's been the leading culture yeah. in the world for thousands of years yes. hasn't it so i mean you know it is very arrogant. And partly because it did not allow for individualism. Yeah, yeah, very much. Perhaps it could be argued. I mean, yeah, it could be. It could certainly be argued. I mean, it's a certain different way of looking at things, isn't yeah. it? There's no kind of ontological kind of like kind of uh, thought process in the sort of Chinese mindset. So, I mean, that that's that's a very we from in the West when we're looking at that, we can't. It's often very difficult for us even to to wrap our heads around that. Yes, <laughs> so, and so we, and. The way you're putting, like I'm thinking about it now, yes, there's absolutely no way to have to really understand that from the inside. I, I, it's actually an achievement to understand that it is so different, but that that may be the genius in it because it becomes like a different medium, like an agar or whatever, different medium hmm. to for this experiment that you know we had an American experiment which precludes this experiment from happening here. So there, yeah. they can take that. Um, cultural medium and do a totally different kind of experiment. Yeah, and I, and I think so. What I'm what I'm basically saying is that there was an uh, there was a a concerted effort to introduce technocracy to China. Um, yeah. yes. And but there was also a you know an economic aspect in terms of you know like when Kissinger went over first before Nixon when Kissinger went over there. Um, what was on his mind? Now, he was representing the trilateral, well, the Rockefellers yeah. and the Trilateral right. Commission. That's who he was representing. Yeah. He wasn't necessarily representing the United States. <laughs> I don't think right? so. So, but when, probably when Nixon went over, he was probably thinking, I mean, I don't know. This No, is I think so, because there's it? a lot of hidden audio of Nixon. Yeah, so I think. And so they probably, did take him out. So he probably did have an idea of what he was doing for the American people. They did take him out. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think he's probably got a diff. What I'm trying to suggest is he's probably got a different mindset to, yeah. to his to what he was doing in China compared to what Kissinger's agenda was. They were probably two different things, you know. Right. So, but I think Kissinger influenced Nixon, and Nixon was oh yeah, no, in all of that. But yes, yeah. his motives were right. So the intention didn't have to be the same. But okay, yeah. yeah. But that definitely answers my question. It's like I, I think. Um, Yes, they were intentionally doing something with China, and they have continued to do that for decades, seems to me. 
Yeah, and I mean, if you look, I mean, I think it's notable that somebody like, you know, like Clinton, who was also in the Trilateral Commission, he lift, he lifted the embargo on China having what they were calling sensitive technology. So the US wouldn't export sensitive technology to China, but it was Clinton that lifted that embargo. So and Clinton's a trilateralist. So, I mean, you know, there's there's a, you can, there's an agenda there. I mean, yes, it's quite definitely. obvious that there's an agenda there. Yes. So, so I think, um, but at the same time, China is a massive marketplace. So, of course, the US and the West and the, you know, the Europeans want access to that market just from a purely economic standpoint. And it's important, and when you're thinking about these different players, it is, I think, important to just really visualize like a person making decisions for his own enrichment. Like I used to work in investment banking, and there were a couple of guys who were superstars who were still like they're masters of the universe right now. They could probably find a list of 10 people who basically are the most influential in the financial system. And I remember how those guys thought. Like they they were geniuses when it came to the numbers and the money and they had relationships with people like senators and stuff like that. They knew where the levers of power were. They were called up sometimes in advance. I, you know, I've read later in the Wall Street Journal, like I knew that guy. He was in the room with Tim Geithner. Wow. And, uh, but they are, they are just ruthlessly considering their bottom line for sure. So they are not thinking what is good for America. They are not thinking about some trilateral agenda. They are in place because they are making that bank the most money it can make. And that is consistent with the agenda. But yeah. it's, uh, but that, that money motive, I think, is what actually gets those guys to pull the, you know, to put the yeah. yoke on yeah. that pulls that engine forward. Yeah, so if you're, if you think, <laughs> if you imagine that you have got, you've got a different agenda, certain, if you've got a different agenda, for example, you want this, this kind of global experiment, you want to move towards a multipolar world order, for example, then people like that are very useful. You don't have to change their minds. You just need to use them to the best of their ability. But direct, right, their, sure. but direct their energy where you want it to go. Right. So you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to tell them what you've got in your mind. Yeah. No, <laughs> just, for sure you, not. Yeah. You you just need to let them do their thing, but do it do it the way that you want it to be done. Yeah. So, you gotta, so yeah. there's this there's this one of the one of the criticisms that I've had with writing about the multipolar world order is people say to me, well, how can you both say that there's this overarching plan which i am suggesting but at the same time you've got these conflicts for example between russia and ukraine or what looks like you know let's call it what it is it's a proxy war between russia yes. and nato yes right so how can you have that happening at the same time as this like well of course you know, people like, you know, the Norman Dodds and the Reese Committee and so forth, they, when he was doing his investigation. So he's he exposed the fact that, that, that yeah. war yeah. war is often quite useful. War can be used as a catalyst for change. And there are people that quite like to encourage conflict because that's quite handy. And I'm not saying that's the case in, in this case, but I'm just pointing pointing that out. So there may be a genuine conflict, like there is a conflict between the upper echelons of management in a corporation. So a corporate, you know, in a corporate body, the the the, the board of directors might be frantically stabbing each other in the back because they all want to be CEO. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the board of trustees and the and the beneficial owners and the and the and the shareholders haven't got a completely separate agenda and are overlooking the whole thing. I'm driving that forward. I have to say, I can give you an example carrying on from that very specific thing I was thinking of when I was in investment banking. And, you know, this guy is for sure master of the universe now. There was one time that somebody from on high called that guy and said, stay away from that, that fight. So it gave me the impression that all that infighting, you take what you, you fight for the corners, you get what you want. And it looks like nobody's paying attention because that stuff is good for them. Competition like creates, you know, yeah, yeah. like more wealth. But if something stepped over the line, only then do you say, you don't say here are the boundaries because then everybody knows what the boundaries are. As it steps over the line, you get a little slap down, keep it to yourself. Uh, I guess yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah. 
But yes, that would be how it worked. And of course, war, you know, because we hate war, because death of little people is important to us because we're little people, it doesn't mean that they think of it that way, big T they. It's not the worst thing that could happen. As a matter of fact, everybody gets rich in that level when you go to war. And then, of course, you also have the great benefits of um, accelerating the CBDC thing, um, accelerating what might be a Petro one, which is you were talked about, um, all that. And as soon as that stuff, I mean, I'm I'm not in the thick of it like you are, but just from a just a cursory view of somebody who's a little bit critical of the news, I was like, really, they're stealing their reserves, they're um, cutting them off of SWIFT. Doesn't that play exactly in their hands? Doesn't it encourage them to have, um, you know, off dollar? transactions with people like Iran and India and stuff like this is playing right into their hands. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the sanctions, I mean, I just want to quickly clarify on that thing. So if you've got the boardroom that are, that are stabbing yeah. each other in the back, but they all work for the same company and none of them want to see the company fail, they're all, they'll all do their thing to ensure that the big project goes forward because that's in their best interests, but they can still have conflicts within it. And I think, and I think, what we're seeing at the moment is a transition from west to east. Yes, there is a conflict. Uh, you know, it, you know, the focal point of that is Ukraine at the moment. But that doesn't mean that the overall project isn't going forward. And I think the overall project is is being facilitated at the moment, as you quite rightly said. By, I mean, let look. Let's look at the effect of the sanctions. I mean, they make no sense. Yeah. They make no sense at all. Yes, they are going to impact on Russia. I mean, Russia's, Russia's, but even Foreign Policy magazine was saying that this is going to push Russia and China together. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. obvious that it's going to push push Russia and China together. And it's going to push the BRICS together. It's it's uniting that kind of power structure in the face of an opposition, which is you know, for want of a better expression, the unipolar world order or whatever people want to call it, the NATO alliance. Everything that that that, that, is, that, that NATO alliance is doing, but and and the, the constituent members of that alliance are doing, is driving the Western economy down and lifting the Eastern economy at the same time. Now, why would I mean that that, that just makes if you are if you are a political leader of you know a big of a, of a leading nation state like France. the US, France, Germany, I mean Germany's Gosh. Germany's position is is Merkel wouldn't do it. I think she was just like okay, well, no. I'm walking away with my legacy as is. Thanks anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I don't think it would have it would have panned out the way it has because I mean, Schultz is very weak, isn't he? So I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, clearly, just it gave up on the Norse. She would never do that. And I mean, I, I'm no fan of her. She capitulated a plenty, but she wasn't willing to just completely abandon Germany. That was—it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense what they're doing. Rain, it's the money. It's all the things that they're doing. They want to put gas um, caps, gas price caps on, oil price caps on. All that does is remove those resources from your marketplace and pushes mm -hmm, them. And mm -hmm. it's so far below. Yellen wants to put a sixty dollar a barrel. Oil yeah. cap. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's not going to happen. So and no. that, but also, I mean, it's you know, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, we're seeing. So, I mean, if we look at the way that OPEC is, is moving away from away from the kind of US orbit and looking towards China and Russia, you have got Saudi Arabia. I mean, that remarkable. I don't know whether you saw it, where the the, the Saudi, uh, I think it was the Saudi ambassador, was just refused. To answer Reuters' questions because he accused Reuters in a, in a debate of I'm basically stitching up the Saudis and they weren't interested anymore and I'm not answering your questions. Wow! No, I but, missed that. So, so, but I mean, you know, you've got people like Yellen saying, you know, we we demand that you that we cap the cap the oil price. I mean, it's it, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, it's like a, they've totally lost lost connection with reality because why why would either the Saudis or the Russians consider that, that that they would allow that to happen? Why would they allow that to happen? They're the I, ones that are producing the oil. <laughs> they're telling us, and I mean, they absolutely had to lay the groundwork for an incredibly stupid population. 
Yeah. Like incredibly stupid because they're saying we're going to have a, a consortium of the EU countries. We're all going to negotiate gas prices, gas purchases as a block. We are going to oh, um, steal the foreign reserves, the U.S. reserves, hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves. And we're going to refuse to pay the contracts in rubles. I don't know if you noticed that yeah, little yeah, nuance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the problem. And they say that Russia is cutting off gas supplies. They, they, that is from my research, that's not what was happening. They were having problems with the Nord Stream turbine. Now they, the fucking thing blew up. Yeah. You know, they're, they're yeah. doing it all on per, you know what I mean? Like every single thing. It just, it's an, it's maddening to me that they're feeding this line. And I guess from a perspective on the other side of the pond, you could tell me, I mean, are the people in the EU so stupid that they don't understand the illogic of this? Or are they at the end of their ropes? Like my psyche is just trying to puzzle through it. No, I think we've just seen big, big um, anti-war protests in Holland and the French people are, I mean, the, the you know, the French have obviously been protesting against this kind of thing for quite a long time, although that seems to have subsided a bit now. But, but um, you know, I, I don't think people aren't that dumb, do you know what I mean? People right. know, that, know that they're being um, taken for a ride. Yeah, but, okay. I mean, the, the, the question is, what are we going to do about it? You know I mean? Yeah. And, and we are trapped in this, in this, the political paradigm that's given to us, and we, and, and consequently, people can't perhaps see a way out. I mean, the only the only way out is through the you know electoral politics. And who are you going to vote for? You know, I mean, we we've got a situation at the moment where our the the UK unelected prime minister has just basically said that she's not interested in holding an election. She's got no mandate, and she doesn't want one. She doesn't care. So <laughs> so yeah. so so you know, I mean, this is a strange situation to find ourselves in and while all of this is happening but i mean at the bottom line of all this and i and this is the tragedy i mean this is the the worst part of it is that people are really going to suffer because of this in, in especially in europe i mean during this this winter the vulnerable yes. vulnerable people are going to die they are going to die because of this you know i mean it's it's well, they've been you know, the target they, all along. I mean, that COVID yeah, and the yeah. backs too are, are about vulnerable people. Report from Iron Mountain talks about that. The next war has to kill the, the weak, not the strong. It's always it the same. Yeah, 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 it's always the same. It's always the people that are least able to cope are the people that get, well, targeted. That's what it looks like. Right. You know, so, so you know, it's a terrible situation that we find ourselves in. But if you step back and look at the overall effect of what is happening. The overall effect, I mean, let's say energy, for example. Yeah. The overall effect is to shift energy flows globally. It's not just about it's not just about the relative price and so forth. It's it's about where the energy is actually going. Now the energy right. at the moment is going to China. China can't get enough. It can't get enough coal, it can't get enough oil and it can't get enough gas. I mean the it is it is sucking up energy. Now, China's economy recently, because of crazy things like zero COVID policy, <laughs> has has started to started to slow down a bit. But nonetheless, there's still levels of growth there that we can't even possibly even hope to match. Now, Russia is quadrupling its supply to China. It's quadrupled its supply to, yes, at capped. You know, it is, it is subsidizing that to a certain extent. But Russia is rapidly moving towards a position where it won't need the European market. Now, when, when that happens, I should add that another point at the moment, and this is disgusting, and I don't know whether you're aware of this, Russia is currently pumping 42 million cubic meters a day of gas through Ukraine into Western Europe. Gaz, Gazprom have just struck a you know, or or resolved uh, an issue with the Ukrainian national gas provider, which is I think is Nas Nafgas Nafgas. I think I'm not sure. I've probably got that wrong. And they and Russia is supplying gas. 40, I mean, this is a drop-off because, I mean, normally it was up to about yeah. 300 cubic yeah. meters, cubic million cubits a day. But now it's put in through 42 to 50 cubits, million cubits I mean, cubits isn't that day. why they took Yanukovych out in the first place? Was yeah. it Yanukovych doing deals about, you know, gas and debt? And, yeah. you know, isn't that why they took him out in the first place is that he was... But the, he was, but, but the politicians are saying they can't stop a war. 
right? They they're right. saying they can't stop a war, and they they're happy to kill each each right. other's populations, but they're doing gas deals. Yeah, that's that's in that book, um, Guido Preparata's book, Conjuring Hitler, about how even during all of that, sixty million people being killed in World War Two. Mm. The money flows never stopped, were not yeah. interrupted. Yeah. And I and that was one of the earliest things because there was a call to action. There's seven calls to action on Johns Hopkins website about COVID. And one of them was to shore up the financial system so that no matter what happened, uh, money flows wouldn't stop. And I remember thinking maybe they're planning on a war and they just need to make sure that that, you know, the pipes are in the ceiling, not on the floor. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like uh, energy is in that. Obviously, energy always is in that ca category of yeah. you know, up there with finance and defense. Um, and wow. food. En and, en yeah. Energy, food, money, water. These, these are the things that, that, that ultimately control us, aren't they? And and actually, I mean, that's interesting because what goes around Ukraine for the gas, the Nord Stream things and the Turk, the Turk Stream, Turkey wanted to be a hub yeah. for the gas. And that that pipeline was being sabotaged also. So they are sabotaging that, sabotaging that yet. Yet Ukraine, you know, where Ukraine. they could most easily probably just blow that up or just turn it off, just say no. Yeah. And they're not. And I always felt like that Ukraine and Syria thing were happening at the same time, you know, over the past decade, mm. because those were important gas conduits to Europe up from like the Qatar, Iran, you know, whatever gas field there and then up from Ukraine. And I kind of lost sight of how essential that was to all of this, because there's just so much noise around that war. But mm. then Putin said, which something I had thought of earlier on was. And it seems so banal, but it's just, it's true or venal that they want LNG. You know, why, how could Europe possibly be a customer for US LNG? I mean, it's just, it's dangerous, it's well, expensive. The only way is if you cut off Russian gas. Yeah, that's true. If you cut off Russian gas, but nor can Europe do that overnight. I mean, this is another problem as well. I mean, the amount of shipping you would need to ship over sufficient LNG from the, from the, the U.S., but where's all the yeah. shipping? And those shipping. ships are very special because LNG yeah, yeah. is pressurized gas, pressurized gas that's liquefied. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, I used to had a, had a briefly had a job in this um, as an analyst at Citibank right out of college, and the ha this was one of the things I looked at. And, like, they're double-hull ships. If, like, one drop of that stuff gets in there... Uh, it expands yeah. and blows the whole thing up and blows the port up. There have been accidents. And I just yeah. was always like, LNG is just not a good thing. You have not, to really secure it. Yeah, but I mean, there aren't enough Expensive. ships. There aren't enough ships at the moment to do that. For sure not. Right, there's nowhere near enough ships. to, to If you couldn't, you couldn't replace Europe's energy, gas, just, just gas. You couldn't, you couldn't replace Europe's gas requirements with LNG from the US now. You might be able to in three or four years' time, but you need. But Europe doesn't have the gas storage capacity. Europe can't hasn't. It just doesn't have it. It doesn't it, physically exist. Not long exist. ago, they were burning gas. I mean, gas. It just shouldn't be that expensive. And actually, the UK mm -hmm. is talking about signing a twenty-year LNG deal. Did you see that? That just yeah, came across. Yeah. Well. So, I mean, I, it is a long-term <laughs> plan. But I mean, so this, I, the only reason I bring that up is that it really speaks to what you were saying earlier about how, yeah, there's big picture agendas. I'm going to control the world. I'm going to have like, you know, total surveillance at all time, a, a currency that you can turn on and turn off if you're, if you get out of line and all of that. And then you have Putin saying, yeah, they just want the LNG business. You know, it's like, it's, it's crazy that those things are the, are the two. You know, one thing yeah. that's like so draconian to us, so and the other is just, just basic monetary greed. It, it's it yeah, bothers the mind. All these things are happening all at once, which is why it's all so, so fascinating. <laughs> we got to bring the bring the white pill in, not not because I, uh, you know, not just gratuitously, but if there's if if this is all if this is where we're at and there's no hope whatsoever then I love you but I never want to talk to you again and I'm just going to spend my life drinking cocktails and you know finding a perch on the top of the mountain and just a hope that I'm far away enough that I can just watch it all burn and not burn down myself but if it isn't totally hopeless then we carry on 
and where, you know, what is your, you know, what keeps you going, I guess, is, is my question. Well, I don't think it's hopeless at all. I don't, these are all, these are all aspirations that, you know, so for, you know, for example, introducing UBI and CBDC and having this global governance, this functioning global governance and all that kind of thing. It's it's all aspirational. Otherwise, we wouldn't be going through what we're going through at the moment. They're trying to install it because they don't. They're not there yet. And the solution to it is so simple. It's so easy. We just simply have to. So just it's not just as simple as just saying no, but we need to be more self reliant. As if we start being more self reliant and we start focusing on each other and focusing on the things that are important to us right here and right now, and we start, you know, concentrating on things like how we're going to feed ourselves, how we're going to stay warm. If we grab, really grab hold of those issues and we do what we need to do to look after ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities and our families, our families and our communities, if we all do that, they will become increasingly and increasingly irrelevant. And in a, in a generation, in a generation or two, there is no reason why we can't have changed everything simply by taking control of the things that are important to us on a daily basis. I, I will I will support that. I appreciate that. And I think evidence of it is that uh, the propaganda machine is just so overwhelming. Like they don't stop. They can't stop. It's like a fire hose. And so that's a tell that they need our minds. Yeah. And then the other thing is they absolutely cannot do it without us being slaves to tech. That yeah. you have to yeah. be slaves to tech or it's just they or they have no power over you whatsoever. Screens are how they control the mind. So I can I can deal with both of those things. I can turn both of those things off, and it's not a bad idea to have your eyes on that prize. I know uh, we're coming to the top of the hour, and I, if you have anything else to add, that's great. I'd love to hear it. And I also would like you to tell people kind of what you're working on, where they can find you, and if we can have uh, at least one more of these conversations. Yeah, no, I'll be delighted. Um, yeah, you can find me at my website, which is, um, as I said, it's Ian with an I, I-A-I-N, davis.com. My so, favorite reading, for sure, are your articles. I really look forward to them. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say, yeah, so I appreciate really that. really true. You can get my book for free on my website. It's um, it's it, not the hardback, but the, the PDF version. And there are other books on there that I've written um, and series that I've written that I've put into PDF bundles that people can get for free as well. Um yeah, and so just just check me out there, and um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, and my handle is underscore all one word in this together. And that's me. Really. Fantastic. Well, it has been such a pleasure, Ian Davis. Thank you so much for joining us. 